On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with Dr. Ingrid Clayton about healing from narcissistic abuse and complex trauma. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Dr. Ingrid Clayton. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Brandon. I'm happy to be here. Well, I am happy that you are here. And before we get started in this episode, uh, just a big content warning for this episode as we do discuss uh, childhood sexual abuse in this episode. And that is our content warning for this episode. And for those that don't know who you are, Dr. Ingrid Clayton... You are a writer and clinical psychologist with a private practice in Los Angeles, California. You have a master's in transpersonal psychology, a PhD in clinical psychology. You have a holistic approach to psychotherapy, incorporating trauma-informed modalities like somatic experiencing, EMDR, and other experiential ways of working with the nervous system. You are also the author of your memoir, Believing Me, Healing from Narcissistic Abuse and Complex Trauma. Today, we're going to talk a lot about complex trauma. And in this book, you uncover, you know, your childhood trauma from a psychologist's perspective. And we've had many therapists uh, on our Survivor Story episodes um, and I love having therapists and psychologists on to talk about their experience of abuse and, and trauma and how they unpack everything. And for those that don't know uh, much about your book, you know, or, or about your life, you never really understood what you were healing from when you were That's kind right. of going through all of this. You grew up in a fog of gaslighting that really made you question your reality. And it wasn't until you heard Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, who everyone knows from The Body Keeps Score, share a case study that was so similar to your life that like a seed was planted and trauma became a big word in your life. And it's interesting, you know, doing a little bit of background before uh, we were talking today. Yesterday, I spoke to someone who didn't have your identical story, but at the core piece of the trauma that happened, the core, like the really big, big uh, event, um, you know, it, it was very similar and that person was, it's a family story, and eventually people are going to hear that story in, in, in the coming weeks, but that person's life was decimated by, by this. And, the, you know, it wasn't just this issue or this family event that occurred. It wasn't just with the one parent. You know, you had the second parent here, which was uh, the mom in both of your cases that denied or minimized the actual issue, which then kind of creates an even bigger problem, um, thus being a very complex long-term trauma, you know, throughout your life. So after that little bit of an introduction, you know, again, thank you for, for being here. And I guess let's just start off with what is complex trauma and I guess the difference between complex trauma and, and regular PTSD and why 
isn't it in the DSM-5? That's the best question of all at the end. I wish I had a good answer for you. I don't. Um, so yes, again, thank you for having me here. And um, complex trauma. So complex trauma is basically synonymous with several other descriptors that people might be hearing. Uh, relational trauma, developmental trauma, and childhood trauma. So complex trauma is ongoing, repeated events over time that are traumatic in nature. And the way that that is differentiated from single event or an acute traumatic experience is what we've sort of thought about historically, which is um, the vet from wartime who experienced an explosion or someone who was in a car crash or you know, devastating natural disasters, these these huge things that everyone can sort of agree like, oh yeah, that was traumatic, that was life-threatening. And for a long time, that really dominated our thinking and language related to trauma. And yet somewhere along the way, you know, people started to recognize, wow, people who grew up in uh, alcoholic homes, uh, deeply dysfunctional situations, neglect, poverty, they are displaying similar adulthood symptoms as those who have PTSD. And so they started to look into this a little bit more. And what we really see now is that PTSD, classic PTSD, which the basic symptoms are, you know, having had experienced a traumatic event, but then later re-experiencing that same event. And this can be nightmares, uh, unwanted memories, intrusive thoughts, or flashbacks. There's the avoidance of anything that might remind someone of that traumatic event. So, you know, the vet doesn't go to the firework display or, you know, similar things along those lines. And then there's a persistent sense of current threat. And, and the language for that is hypervigilance. It's sort of like, it's going to happen any moment. I know it's going to happen. The bottom's going to fall out. You're kind of constantly surveying the land for any markers of potential threat. Um, so that's classic PTSD. Complex PTSD includes all of that, right? So the same symptoms. But it extends beyond it to include affect dysregulation. So that's difficulty managing emotions. Um, there's a negative self-concept, which tends to be related to what we call toxic shame. So it's not just I made a mistake or I did a bad thing. It's really this deep-seated feeling that I am bad, right? I am broken. This is the language we hear a lot from trauma survivors that I personally lived with for decades. And third, because it is relational trauma, there's disturbances in your relationships. Uh, and that can look different for different people. You know, for me, I was able to cobble together some really decent, loving, long-term friendships, but my romantic relationships, I could not get a healthy romantic relationship to save my life. So there's an ongoing, sustained, repeated pattern of difficulty in relationships. And, you know, to your other point, this is not in our current diagnostic manual in the United States. And, and honestly, I'm a clinician who thinks that the DSM is pretty fraught across the board. I think um, it's our, it's been our way of sort of looking at symptoms and putting them in clusters and trying to give them language. And 
And in a lot of ways, that can be very helpful. And in a lot of ways, it falls deeply short of what is the actual human experience, you know? Um, so although it's not in our DSM, the World Health Organization, uh, the, I think it was 2018 or 19, but they added CPTSD to their classification of disorders. And, you know, it may not be in our DSM, but I think fortunately a lot of clinicians are finally catching up and saying, you know, what is this complex trauma thing? Um, how is it presenting? People are starting to work with it with trauma-informed therapies, which are different from traditional talk therapies. And I feel the tide is turning, and yet we still need a lot of education for clinicians and um the general lay person so that they can be informed when they're looking for a therapist to say, do you work with trauma? Do you work with complex trauma? Uh, tell me what that means. Like what, what specific trauma trainings do you have under your belt? Uh, so that, so that they're not wasting their time. Like I actually did for many years, both as a clinician as, and as a consumer of therapy, I've sat on a lot of therapist couches, Brandon, over the years. And I've told my story a million times. I never forgot my story, but just repeating it over and over as though I was going to get some sort of insight or light bulb moment. Like maybe you have a few of those along the way, but they never arrested my deep down symptoms, right? They never got to the root of the thing. And when we talk about trauma, this is why Bessel van der Kolk's book is The Body Keeps the Score. You know, it's in our nervous system. It's stored in our cells. It's not this cognitive, rational, logical thing. Most trauma survivors are brilliant, very smart people. If they could figure this thing out by analysis, they would have done it a long time ago. Um, so it's just a completely different, it's a different thing altogether. And, and if you're not focusing on that, you're not getting that kind of healing. And your memoir is split into three different parts, sections, traumatic events, tra trauma responses, trauma healing. But before we get to that, you said the word language. And when I think of our Survivor Story episodes, to me, one of the most important things, if not the most important thing, is language. And I say that in the sense of not just the language of jargon, uh, you know, when it comes to different types of abuses, tactics, things along those lines, but language of feelings, um, language of senses within your body. You know, we try to get like a 3D picture for people as far as language goes and different ways for them to explain to themselves yes. what is going on. And it's there's so many books you can read or things like that, but it's not until an actual survivor just like you, describes things, you know, in their own voice. That's right. Uh, that things can change. And with you, you know, one of the taglines I think I read of your book was, what if emotional abuse is so hidden, it, its effects remained unchallenged for decades, masquerading as personal failings? 
That's my whole story right there. For you, so many yeah. people can go throughout therapy for a very, very, very long time and think that they're doing the work. Oh, yeah. And they're dancing around, you know, those feelings, you know, the language, all of those things. And it's not until, you know, you hear someone else who might have gone through the same thing as you kind of flip a light switch. It kind of just goes boom like that. And that's what happened when you were in a training with Dr. Bessel van der Kolk and he was sharing a case study. So explain what happened to you here. My mouth got dry and time started to slow and I got dizzy and I wanted to literally evaporate in this room with other clinicians because he was telling my story and he was telling it in the context of a trauma survivor. And that was so disorienting to me because you know, I think for a lot of us with narcissistic abuse and with childhood trauma, um, we go, mm, it wasn't that bad, right? Come on. It wasn't that bad. A lot of us have this like trauma measuring stick that's like, no, 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 yours was worse. So mine doesn't count. And there's lots of reasons for that, right? With narcissism, in part, it's because you're being told it wasn't that bad by the abuser, right? The gaslighting that goes hand in hand with emotional abuse, it's meant to warp your thinking about what happens so you can't trust yourself. And with childhood trauma, we are, as a species, hardwired for relationship and needing our caregivers long past any other species. You know, you don't look in the animal kingdom and go, 18 years they're staying with mom and dad, right? We are hardwired for that kind of need on our caregivers and this long-term relationship. And so as a complete just survival mechanism, children almost, I want to say, cannot put all the blame on their parents. Uh, one, cognitively, they might not be developmentally able to even think that way. But two, because we need our caregivers to survive the child will automatically instinctually go, oh, it's me. It's my fault. I'm the bad one. Because if we make them bad and we see them at fault, our life is at stake. We need these people. So it's a very common feature for trauma survivors to go, oh, it wasn't that bad. Maybe it's just me. I'm, I'm looking you know, at things through sort of a distorted lens. And so we can't even use the language of trauma. If we can't use the language of trauma, how are we meant to call up a therapist and go, are you a trauma therapist? Do you work with trauma, right? So as we minimize our experience, we minimize our ability to get the help that we deserve. And that's why this larger conversation around really opening up and unpacking, like what does this type of abuse truly do to a person um, so that it opens the door for people to go, yes, I did have that experience. Oh, I had that too. Oh, that's trauma. Oh, that's a trauma response. It's so empowering. And with you, you know, you had a traumatic event, trauma response, trauma healing. And in, in our recent episodes, we started to bring up trauma reenactment. So before we get into your traumatic events, can you speak on trauma reenactments, which is a trauma response? I'm so interested in this piece about reenactment because learning about that also 
I had so much shame, Brandon. Like if I think about it now, to be a clinical psychologist with all these degrees, having written a, a book previously, all these trainings, all this language, um, sober for decades, right? Like if anyone is out doing the work to the extent that they consciously could, it was me. And yet I could not get into a healthy relationship to save my life. And I'm literally going to my therapist going, why do I keep like seeing the same partner with a different face? And it was mortifying. And when I learned about trauma reenactment, it gave me so much compassion for myself. And here's the bullet points of what often happens with narcissistic abuse. Okay. There's the abuser. And what often happens, which is what happens to me is our trauma responses rush in to save the day. Okay. So trauma responses generally are fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. And fawning is the one that is a pretty common pairing with narcissistic abuse. Because fawning is a relational trauma response. It's basically codependency, but I don't love the language of codependency. I really prefer fawning because it's rooted in trauma. Um, it's an instinctual response. It's not conscious. So we don't need to blame people or shame people. Like, why did you stay? And don't be a doormat. And like all of these things that we do to victims. Um my fawning response had me learn how to read my stepdad's mood before he even walked in the door. I knew by the sound of his footsteps leaving the car, walking into the house. And then I knew, oh, who do I need to be in order to navigate and manage his mood, right? Even if that was disingenuous, right? So there's a self-abandonment that happens with fawning. It's just an aspect of if I'm morphing into who do you need me to be in order to stay safe, there's a self-abandonment that's happening. And so what happened to me is I learned based on the environment that I grew up in that almost the best I can do in terms of finding safety, which is always what the body will privilege, the body doesn't care about our goals or our opinions. It's life or death. These are our instincts. So I learned that for me to stay safe, I literally had to survey the land, manage other people's moods and emotions, tolerate abuse, lying, manipulation, all of those things. And so if I didn't have any other experience in my body, lived, learned experience uh, in relationships and finding safety, guess what I'm going to do? My body's going to seek safety in that same dynamic, in that familiarity, right? What we say in the trauma world is red flags don't look like red flags when they feel like home even though I consciously knew I did not want to recreate that relationship, my body instinctually would go into fawning to find a sense of safety and I would do it over and over again, right? So that's kind of the nutshell of, of the trauma reenactment piece and how it worked with the fawning trauma response for me personally. But I, yeah, I developed that in the, in the environment of a stepdad who was my dad's best friend. You know, I think that that's such an odd common thing uh, for the 
the narcissist to kind of move in on someone else's situation. And uh, he married my mom. And day one, I knew he was an alcoholic. I knew he was a bully. I knew I didn't like him. I knew he he sort of took up all the oxygen in the room. And it was like I immediately saw my mom disappear in his shadow. And I say this in the book, it was like, I was always wondering where my mom was, even when she was standing in the same room, because she lost her voice, she lost her opinion, she lost authority. And suddenly we were living in, in Randy's world, you know, and, um, for me, that took shape in a lot of different ways, just being isolated, moving to the middle of nowhere in the mountains and really restrictive parenting and the rules change all the time. And so, you know, there's no uh, stability and consistency. It's like one day you can do it this way, the next day you do it the same way and you're grounded for months. You're not allowed to leave the house, you know, um, and the bigger the bigger piece of my story is uh my stepdad, I now know, had a history of grooming younger girls primarily. Um, and that's what he was trying to do to me in my own home under my mother's not watchful eye. And my body knew it, but he wasn't overt, right? So like a lot of emotional abuse, it's almost like a lot of us walk around going, I wish I did have bruises. I wish it was physical. I wish it was visible. I wish maybe even I was raped. What a horrible thing to say. And it's not at all to break out that trauma measuring stick, except that when the abuse is emotional and hidden and gaslighting and grooming that you can't see, it makes you question your reality. Is this really happening? Well, no one else seems to see it. Uh, you you, you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, Dr. Romani often says that's like the dangerous, most dangerous phrase uh, in a narcissistic family system is the benefit of the doubt. We go, oh, you know, they're a good person and they mean well and they have their own past and history. And I did that. I did that. And it it created this split in me where part of me knew what happened. And another part of me was like, it, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that big of a deal. Just get out, get into your own life, right? Just like kind of this, this idea of a clean slate and like time heals all wounds and all these things that are super compelling, right? Like just let it go and forgiveness. I mean, I tried it all. And the reality is that what happened to me in that house it still lives in me to this day. It doesn't live in me to the extent that it did, where it was as though it all happened yesterday, even if it was decades. Um, I couldn't shake it. I couldn't shake it. And that's the that's the trauma response piece that I, I ended up living these chronic trauma responses, kind of trying to almost like override my past or outrun it or outsmart it. Right. I was like, let's be honest. There's a reason I ended up with so many degrees because I'm going to figure it out, Brandon. I'm going to get smart enough. I'm going to, that, that didn't heal my trauma. You know, I moved far away, farther and farther. Like, okay, maybe New York, maybe Boston, maybe Holland. It's like, if I just keep going, going, going further away from Colorado, geography didn't fix it, you know? Um, 
like I said, all this talk therapy, all these things, but I was stuck, truly stuck in, for me, what my primary trauma responses were fawning, which I mentioned, which we end up doing all the time. It's just this people pleasing, like, I don't really exist. Your needs matter more than mine. Um, and then for me, the flight response, which can sometimes look very uh, much like it does in the animal kingdom, which is an animal is spooked by another animal and he's frightened and flight is running away, right? Like I'm out of there. But Pete Walker, who is an expert in complex trauma, talks about flight as staying in perpetual motion. And that was me, right? Like that's the degrees, that's the perfectionism. It's the obsessive compulsive piece. It's my addictions, right? I went into full alcoholism, drug addiction, got sober very young, thank goodness. But again, anything my body could try to sort of outrun, override what happened to me and nothing worked. Nothing worked. I wish you could have seen my face when I was listening to a bit of your story yesterday. Because the person that I talked to yesterday yeah, went through a lot of stuff when they were younger. They found mm. This person found out in the aftermath that why they were the scapegoat originally was because the father knew that they were attracted to them at a very young age. So to repel against them made them the scapegoat. But when, they, but when they got older, you know, things did happen. But because of the scapegoating early on and then moving away from the family but still being in contact with the family, addiction problems occurred, just like you. The, yes. per, the person eventually wanted to be proud of themselves, became a yeah. social, got a social, social worker, <laughs> and something else that was said in your mm. story. So, so what happened with this person was uh, when the event did happen, that immediately when they, they push back against it, the person got up and goes, sorry, and then scurried away. Okay, gosh, isn't that funny? So that's exactly what happened at one point with my stepdad who came back to my room. And I could see he wasn't in his body. He just had a darkness in his eyes. I'd never seen. It was a vacancy. No one was there. And I was like, yeah, what's going on? And he just leaned in to kiss me. And it just, it wasn't a fatherly kiss. Not that we ever did that anyway. Um, it was too long and too intense. And then he pulled back and he looked at me. And I think I said like, Randy. And he leaned in to do it again. And then I pushed him. My body sort of sprung into action. I pushed him off. It was like I saw him come into his body and he said sorry. And then he just turned and he left and never spoke of it again. And that piece about the scapegoat as a defense against the narcissist, like <laughs> if there was any capacity for real shame there, my stepdad literally sat me down one day and he said, you know what? I give you the silent treatment because the feelings I have for you are not the feelings one has for a stepdaughter. And I'm sitting there going, he's owning it. Like he knows what's going on. He's giving it language in a way that was crystallizing what I knew, but I probably couldn't have articulated. Um, 
And he said, and then when I'm not feeling bad about it, I just want to give you the world. And that's what would happen. It would all the love bombing, take me shopping and, you know, trips and things like that. And so I'm thinking as he's telling me this, that it's like a a confession that's going to come with some sort of repair, you know, and really what it was is him telling me this. So two things might happen. One, I'd feel sorry for him. He's the victim. Oh, you poor thing. You're so tortured by this cycle where you have to give me the silent treatment because you want to sleep with me. And I'm like, I'm supposed to feel sorry for him. I'm 16 years old sitting on my stepdad's bed as he's telling me this confession. That's one outcome I'm sure he wanted. The second outcome is if he tells me and he admits that he wants me in that way and he's vulnerable to me, maybe I'll want him back. And when neither of those things happened and I said, I'm glad you're talking about this, but I'm probably not the appropriate person to tell. Everything he just confessed, it was written all over his face. He went from loving me in a moment and wanting to give me the world to boom, you're shut out. You're dead to me. You're the problem. Like the disgust on his face is visceral. I can remember it in this moment. And what that did to me was go, oh my gosh, I don't like the silent treatment and him hating me and shutting me out of my own existence in my own home was so painful that I almost wanted to do anything to rewind the tape and go back to moments earlier when he was loving me, even if it was so effed up. So as he's walking out the room, I'm like, wait, you know, wait, don't go. And then he's gone. And I'm just left lifeless on the edge of his bed, like holding the bag, holding the bag. And I held it until he died when I was in my forties. And that was the big turning point for you, or at least part of the turning point was when he died, you know, to really unlock what had happened. Yeah. And a big thing for you was also the response of your, your mom. In, mm-hmm. in this, in that, you know, part of the gaslighting isn't just from the abuser, it's from the other parent. And I can see the pain on your face. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, when you said you could see the pain on my face, it made me in touch with it. Um, to be honest, and I, I write about this, all the atrocities that Randy did weren't the worst traumatic events that happened to me, right? He took me to Las Vegas. He was parading me like a girlfriend. I now know he was introducing me as a girlfriend. All kinds of things, horrific, scary things. Pale in comparison to my mom telling me when I finally told her everything, Ingrid, I believe that you believe that those things happened, but I don't believe that they did. And she maintained that. I mean, I think to a large degree, she still maintains that. And I held what I now refer to as a toxic hope that one day my mom would tell me that she believed me 
and that she's sorry that she didn't protect me. I truly, Brandon, believed, even with all my training and blah, 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 I truly believed that the key to my healing was either my mom or Randy or both of them had to admit what happened. It was like they held the key. It felt in my body like this is relational, like in order the wounding happened in relationship. The healing needs to happen in relationship. It really felt like that to me. It never, ever occurred to me that I could just trust myself and know that what happened happened and I'm allowed to set appropriate boundaries around that. I think it's also because the family piece, right? Like blood is bigger than water and it's your family. And I didn't even know that I could question those things and think about well, how does that really apply to me, right? Like, um, I just had to figure out how to be a good girl and clean my side of the street, like I said, and forgiveness and show up. And, you know, I moved far away. It wasn't like I hung out with everybody every weekend. It never occurred to me that they could, I could not have them in my life. And so I was waiting and waiting and waiting. and. It never happened. And he died really with what felt like going to his grave with his side of the story intact. And I think that piece of it sort of ignited something in me. But the other thing that happened, and I think this is important for a lot of people to hear, I honestly don't believe that my body would have ever felt safe enough to do some of this work while he was still alive. That's how traumatized I was, that it was not worth it to push back again because I tried, right? I tried, even as a kid, I organized an intervention for my family with social services. I tried to do all the things and it, honestly, it all made it worse. It all made it worse. Now I'm not just holding the bag. I'm holding the bag with people looking back at me going, nothing we can do about it. You're probably making it all up, right? So now I'm a liar and I'm traumatized and no one's coming to save me. And so really it was like, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna deal with this again. It's not safe. And when he died, my body was like, you cannot hold this bag anymore. And that's when this writing started happening out of the blue, like pen to paper, dictating into my phone non-stop any free moment I had, memories of my childhood, memories of abusive relationships. It was like these, these essays, these stories were just coming for me. They woke me up in the middle of the night, almost every night at clockwork, 3 a.m. My eyes would pop open. I'd have to walk out to my computer. Another story was coming and I kind of thought I was going mad. I was like, what is this? I can't stop. I'd show my husband at the end of the day in between raising our two-year-old son at the time, you know, seeing multiple clients, I would print out like 30 pages, single spaced and of this just coherent stuff. And he was like, you wrote this today? Like what is going on? And I couldn't stop. And the, the, the long story short there is I wrote for years. I couldn't stop because I needed to piece together these puzzles of my own life and my own body that had gone missing for 
ever. And I wrote until one day I could look back at the stuff that was in me. Now it's out of me on the page and I can see it in black and white. And for the first time, I can see it through a therapist's eyes, right? So all this training that I got that I didn't think applied to me because it wasn't that bad, I could see, yes, it was. And yes, it does. And when I saw that I had all this information and all this training and all this whatever, and I still didn't know, A, that it was narcissism and narcissistic abuse. I never had that language before. Never. And B, that it was trauma. I thought if I didn't know this about myself, how many people are walking around and they don't know. And then I knew that my story was not just for me, just like what you're doing with the podcast. One survivor talking to another. I'm a clinician, but it is not a clinical book. It is my story. And I've been floored, and I'm sure you get this all the time, about the similarities. It's like it's this crazy same blueprint. And so the specifics of my story are mine. But the feelings and my responses and other people's responses and the family dynamics and how we navigate it, it's the same. It's the same. And so I wrote the memoir and then the clinician in me said, I got to have a glossary of clinical terms in the back of the book, right? Because if people want it, it's a jumping off point to get more information and resources and tools. And for the people that don't want it or need it, it's not going to muddy up the piece that's just like, here's my heart. Here's what happened. I hope that it helps you to finally believe yourself. Because today I know without a doubt what happened. I know what it did to me. I know what I deserve. I know what it takes to heal. Oh my gosh, I wanted those things my whole life right? I'm almost 50 years old and I'm just coming to this place right now. I do not want other people to live for decades thinking that it's just them and that they're broken. And where's the, where's the escape hatch? Where's the magic bullet? Where's the thing? Um, yeah. Yeah. I know our episode here is not over yet, but I'm really happy you came on the show today. Oh, thank you for saying that. That means a lot to me. I know you you share a lot of people's stories and do a lot of powerful things with your platform. And it means a lot to me to, to get to be here with you. Oh, no, like last night, it felt like, wow, when I was listening to you yesterday and also the story that I had heard previously, mm. it, re- it gave me goosebumps. And it's like, oh, this is a weird synchronicity that this yeah. is happening twice in a day. Yeah. And, you know, you coming on here right now and talking with such feeling and language for people. Um, in its sadness, it's a beautiful thing, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Because I couldn't feel around this stuff for so long. I think that's that piece about knowing my story and telling my story. I told it like this. My stepdad took me to Vegas when I was 16 years old and he paraded me around like a girlfriend and got us a suite at the Tropicana, right? Like I could tell you all of the things, but I was never processing the feelings. That wasn't safe. I'm going to pick your brain after we finish this for a minute too, to ask you a little bit more questions about storytelling and and just how how we can help change storytelling here. So... 
when it comes to the healing aspect of things, yeah, for people who are trying to figure out healing of complex trauma, and not just complex trauma, you know, you there's grief in there. Oof, that's a big piece of it. So I guess it, kind of go through your process and what trauma healing is or can be for different people and different types of modalities or, or things like that. So I think one of the biggest things, and it's why I talk about narcissistic abuse through the lens of trauma, because like I said earlier, if you don't have the lens and language of trauma, you don't avail yourself of those tools and resources. And so nobody else gets to decide if what you experienced was traumatic or if you've been traumatized, okay? This idea that certain things are traumatic and certain things are not, uh, it's just a false one. That trauma is anything that overwhelms our nervous system. So there was this part of me that was like, oh, well, you know, my stepdad just gave me the silent treatment. Like, so he's not talking to me, you know, oh, poor me. What's the big deal? It's like, I cannot tell you how much that overwhelmed my nervous system as a teenager, right? Who doesn't even have a solid sense of self yet. Teenagers only know themselves in their relationships to others to be just completely ignored. And then in the other conversations that are happening around me, it felt like little hot pokers were being stuck in my back because I was being excluded in such a specific way about things that probably interested me or even were about me. Okay. That was deeply traumatic. It overwhelmed my nervous system. It changed my ability to feel safe in that environment, which changed who I had to be and how I needed to respond in order to create just a tiny bit more safety for myself. So nobody else, I couldn't wait for my stepdad. I couldn't wait for my mom. I had to name it and own it for me. And honestly, I just feel like that's about half the work. <laughs> it's a, it's being able to go, oh, this is what really happened. Being able to use the language of abuse. That to me was like, oh, you know, that whole piece about I didn't have bruises, right? Like my mom never left this guy. It must not have been that bad. It does not, other people's responses to the same situation do not take away the fact that something is abusive to you, right? And this is common in families that different people have radically different experiences. Um, so we have to own our own. And then when I could own, oh, this is what happened and uh, it was traumatic and I am still living with all of this, then I had to take a really hard look at how I was still operating in a way where I still had these people in my life, right? And how am I maintaining my trauma responses in these dysfunctional relationships? And I had to really lean in and do the work of what are boundaries, right? <laughs> like really what are boundaries? 
can I set, am I allowed to set, are you sure? And, and just privilege my healing above all else. It really, I had to put this healing at the top of the hierarchy and anything that didn't support me in it, I had to be willing to let go of. And that included really significant relationships like the one with my mom. Never in a million years, Brandon, if you had said to me at any stage of my life, do you imagine that you would ever not be in relationship with your mom, that you would choose that? I would say, no, of course not. It became apparent to me that maintaining a relationship with someone who still saw me as manipulative or as a liar or anything related to that, um, they do not know me at all. And they are not entitled to be in relationship with me. Um, I also feel very strongly as a mother that I will not bring that energy into my son's life. I will not model for him that it's okay to tolerate those kinds of dysfunctional relationships, right? This idea of cycle breaking feels really important to me. Um, for me, and I know it's a little bit unusual because not everyone's going to write a book and go on social media and make funny reels about narcissism and trauma, but those things were very healing for me. And so what I say about that is if you feel pulled or called, uh, whether it's related to creativity or art or sharing, um, I encourage you to explore those things. I think that the body truly does want to heal. And sometimes it looks very personal and unique. And you're like, wow, I had no idea that I'd find healing on a pottery wheel, but there's something about the grounding of being with the clay and being in my body, right? Like it can look so different. And for me, it was being silly, you know, on Instagram in a lot of ways and creating community. Community, I think is really powerful to share little pieces of my story and have people go, me too, or, oh my gosh, I didn't think about it that way. Um, it started to help me validate even more like, oh yes, this is what happened. This is my truth. Um, so community, creativity. When we talk about the nervous system, we're talking about the body. We're talking about, I, I spontaneously took a deep breath right there. I love that because that's an indicator of regulation of a regulated nervous system. I have access to my full breath. I feel grounded. I feel present. So somatic things like yoga or like somatic experiencing therapy, there are different types of somatic therapies. They are about getting us in our bodies in a way that feels safe and regulated. And it's so important. And, and um, I just also thought of in EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. I think I said it correctly. It's another trauma um, therapy. We utilize bilateral stimulation, which is just right, left movement. And so it helps, we believe, to process some of these memories that might be stuck, similar to what we naturally do with REM sleep, where our eyes are going de -de 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 back and forth, right, left, right, left. We can create that bilateral stimulation through drumming, through that movement and sound of right, left arm drumming. We can do it by dancing, by swaying. We can use the butterfly hug, crossing your arms over your chest and tapping right, left, right, left 
going for a walk, right, left, right, left, and orienting to your surroundings with the senses. So the language of the nervous system is the senses. So I do this in my own life. I do it with my clients all the time. When we're feeling a little like dissociated or triggered or not quite in our bodies, I'll say, let's just pause and slow this down. I want you to look around the room and notice what you see. And for some people, it's helpful to name it out loud or even in their mind, like plant, window. But the basic point is orienting to what you see or hear or smell or feel. It puts you in the present tense, lets you know, oh, I am safe right now. Nothing bad is happening right now. And so just having some of these practices, these tools, if you go to any of my social media stuff, there's a link. I have a free download for a PDF that has lots of what I call DIY um, trauma healing stuff that you could do on your own. And so, so these are a piece of that. Um, so I think there is a lot we can do by ourselves um, that is really powerful. But then I will always say, find a trauma therapist. You know, it took me, I felt so burned by prior therapists who never saw it as trauma, never gave me the language of narcissism that I was like, even as a therapist, I'm like, I'm not going to do that again. But then after I wrote the book and realized, you know what, I need more support here. Um, I found a trauma therapist and it's the most impactful, helpful therapeutic relationship of my life. And we're doing a modality called IFS, which is internal family systems. And I love it. It's so helpful. I feel like I continue to unburden myself uh, over and over in all of these different ways. And so things like IFS, there's a lot of acronyms in trauma therapy, EMDR, um, SE for somatic experiencing. I think the most important thing, and, and, and I hope this gives everybody permission, I can't tell you how many people and how I did this as a consumer of therapy. I just looked in my insurance book or someone in my zip code and they had therapist under their name or psychologist. And I was like, oh, they're the expert of all the things. And I showed up as though they were going to have all the answers. And now I know, oh my word, like it's like any other specialization, right? Like you're not going to go to your GP for heart surgery. You're going to go to a, a heart surgeon. Um, so to be able to call up a potential therapist and say, I think what I'm working with here is complex trauma. I have a history of childhood trauma or relational trauma in my marriage or whatever it is, narcissistic abuse. See, see if they even know that language. If they don't, mm, it's not a good fit. And see if they know the language of complex trauma. And if they do, what are their specific trauma trainings related to being a helpful clinician? They should be able to answer these questions. If they can't, thank you for your time. Call somebody else. And before we leave today, do you have any words of wisdom for everyone who is listening? I think that... My own evolution of coming to believe myself has been such an interesting one to the point where as I'm publishing the book, I'm still talking to a friend of mine and going, 
I think the title believing me is too declarative. It's too strong. I don't quite like, are, are we sure? And in some ways that title was even holding more of what was to come in terms of my own freedom and healing and belief. And so whatever helps you grab that, it's like a life preserver. Maybe you're not on the boat yet, but like whatever even those threads are of things that help you orient towards self-trust. Like you know, right? Like there's a piece in my book where I ended up unearthing all kinds of truths that shocked the hell out of me. It was like the evidence was there. What's real is I knew there was something to search for before I found the evidence. And we don't need the evidence. We, this, there's a reason at the end of the day that I said, yes, it's about believing me. And believing me means I know what happened. I can use the appropriate language for it. And I am entitled to whatever help and support I need. To, to get through it to the other side, where that stuff is not living in my body anymore, Brandon. There are aspects of my story that I, that I almost get a little foggy over now because it's not like it just happened yesterday. It's not a memory that's living as an imprint where I can tell you the wallpaper was blue and it had this, like, I don't have those details just renting space in my everyday consciousness anymore. And it's possible. I wish it for everyone. We all deserve it. Don't stop until you find it. That was a very long final offering, but that's what I've got. <laughs> well, I thank you for that, Dr. Ingrid Clayton. And I really want to just thank you for being here with us today sharing all of your knowledge, sharing your story, and people can find you at ingridclayton.com. I will leave that in the show notes. I will also leave your Instagram in their show notes and a link to buying your book, Believing Me, Healing from Narcissistic Abuse in Complex Trauma. And I'm just really happy you were here uh, with me today and talking with me. I, you know, I think you're going to help kind of change and, and shape the show in a way uh, in the future after I kind of have a little chit chat with you. So just a big thank you for, for being here with me today. It's an honor. Thanks, Brandon. Well, thank you once again, Dr. Clayton, for being here. And for those of you out there that want to be a guest on our Survivor Story episodes, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there is a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone that needs support, we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there's the button that says Support Group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday nights, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. It is a wonderful group of people on there, and you can share your experiences with all of them. And you can make friends too. So if you need support, join our support group today. 
And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number and email address and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you are in. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and organization. So if you need extra support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And we also have a friend of the show called Shelter Movers, and Shelter Movers can be found at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. It is a volunteer organization, a donor-supported charitable organization as well. They are currently only in Canada, but they are looking to expand into the United States. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for getting out of domestic violence. They help you to safety and get all of your things out of your home and into storage, all of your belongings into storage. And they can do this for your pets and livestock too. It is a wonderful organization. So if you need help from them or just want to donate to them, please go to sheltermovers.com. And that is it for today's episode. I hope you found today's episode helpful. And a big thank you once again to Dr. Ingrid Clayton. And from myself, And Dr. Clayton, we hope you have a good night.